This year we are doing a series of word studies. There is an, a cohesive theme. I, ha I don't know if there's any left uh, on the table in the front. I had flyers that have the list of sermons that we will be doing this year. Uh, uh, words of life. And I've divided it into several different series. Uh, the first one will be about God. Uh, but the goal is to sort of run through the whole gamut of our faith. Now, this is a very loosely, I'm using loosely, very much so, loosely based on the one word study, which is a, a sort of a, a devotional guide that uh, is, is published by several people in the church, uh, members of the church. Uh, you can find that at onewordstudy.com. A couple weeks ago, it was out of stock. We couldn't buy any, but I noticed that it was back in stock if you want to buy that, to go along, they have a devotional book. They have the, the sort of the study that goes along. But I say loosely because I've removed a lot of their words. They had 52 words. I've removed some of them and I've added some different ones and I've totally redone the order. So it is very loose. Uh, there are some things that will go along with that if that's something you're interested in, in purchasing and, and sort of doing that in your own study. Uh, but some goals of this study as we think about this. We're going to do some deep dives on some specific words. Uh, especially when we get to some of those religious words like sanctification and, and justification and atonement. So we'll do some deep dives. Uh, some of these will be more about the English words that we use and how those, how we use those words and how they, uh, they matter. But the goal is to cover the breadth of the gospel. We're going to start with God and we're going to end at the very beginning or at the very end of uh, the year with last things, heaven and hell and judgment and resurrection. So we're covering the breadth of the Bible story, really, as we go through these words. From first principles, we're going to have a section on, on Christian living. And so the first series is on God as the first, the, the creator, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the focal point of the whole thing, really. Uh, God and important as, uh, facets of his nature. So we will begin with the word God itself this morning. And this is such a broad word, right? We think about the word God and who it applies to and what it applies to and what it's used for in the Bible and, of course, in our own language. In English, of course, the word God properly used of a deity or creator, but not exclusively. We use it hyperbolically all the time to talk about uh, people who are great at stuff or, or people who are in charge of things. And, and the people in the Bible use the word the same way, right? We have the word God properly meaning a deity, but they use it sometimes to refer to kings and warriors and magistrates and other deities, right? So we have this, this super broad word in, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, these generic words. And so a lot of our sermon today will set up future word studies about different aspects of God, but the use of the word itself, which I'm going to say this because next week we're going to talk about it more. God is not a name, just not. It is a generic word to describe, if anything, I'm trying to think about what sort of thing it is. It's not a name. It's a race or a kind of being. That's what the word is. Uh, some sort of deity is, is what we might say otherwise. And so the use of God in scripture, the word God, is to delineate the true God, the one who is a deity, the one who did create all things, from all the other kinds of gods that people talk about. There's many different gods that are mentioned in the Bible. We've got the Baals and the Astros, and we've got Zeus and Hermes and the Greek and Roman gods, and we have gods of Egypt, and we have gods of all these different peoples. The word God in the Bible pointing us to the really only one being that we can use this word for. Because there's only one. 
We read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 a minute ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is an interesting thing about the primary word translated God in the Old Testament. The singular being Eloha, not Aloha, but Eloha, the singular word in Hebrew for God. The plural being Elohim. Uh, the I am, you've got cherubim and seraphim, that's plural. I am in Hebrew is plural. Instead of an S, we use S. And it's interesting that the plural is used here as it often is. In the beginning, Elohim, gods, created the heavens and the earth. And it is often, when it is applied to Yahweh, when it is applied to the one true God, the plural, Elohim, and not the singular, Eloha. Perhaps the royal we, right? The, maybe that idea. Shades of the Trinity, I think, definitely. But often, when talking about the one true God, the writers of the Old Testament use this singular plural, Elohim. And it is not in the sense of multiple gods. It is clear in the context when they use this, even in this context, in the beginning, God, a singular entity that is described using this plural, exclusive plural, and then when, it, when the Bible writers talk about other gods, like Baal or Ra, who is a god of the Egyptians, or, or Zeus or whoever, they use the singular. Because, again, I think we're seeing, even in the beginning here, shades of this idea of the Trinity, which we'll talk about more in another lesson. But the idea of this one true God. Deuteronomy 10, 17-22. For the Lord your God is God of gods. Elohim of Elohim. Singular plural, and then plural, it's the proper plural, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial or takes no bribe. He executes justice. And when we talk about he, that is singular. When we transition from Elohim of Elohim, gods of gods, we might think in the Hebrew, but then the rest of the writing in Deuteronomy is very singular. He does this. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The, the phrase, the Lord your God, very important phrase, and we'll talk about the first part of it today, God. We'll talk about the second part of it next week, Yahweh. Yahweh your God. Not just any God, but a very particular, specific God who has a name. His name is Yahweh. He has done what? All of these great and terrifying things. I like, it's, and I don't know if like, but it's interesting to me, who has done for you these great and terrifying things. The death of the firstborn was terrifying. Should have been terrifying. It says, particularly in the text in Exodus, that the, the Israelites heard the wail that came up from the Egyptians when all the firstborn were killed by the angel of death. That would be, or should be, terrifying. The water as it's parted, the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts, everybody walks through on dry land, and then you look behind, and the chariots come through, Pharaoh's chariots, Egyptian chariots come through, the water crashes back upon them. That would have been terrifying. God, as opposed to all these other gods, as opposed to all these other deities that people serve, he 
is real and acts. He does things, many things. And it is because of the things that he does in Deuteronomy 10, what, what the, the writer is saying, what Moses is saying, it is because of the things that God does that we worship and serve him. That's the primary contrast of this word in the Old Testament. The plural, again, often used in place of the singular Eloha. It is often shortened, though, to El, just El, and put with another word to describe some facet of God. You might have heard some of these before. God Most High, El Elyon. As in Genesis 14, this is Melchizedek talking to Abraham. Abraham comes from a great battle. He sees Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. El Elyon, the God that is above all the other gods. He is the most high being. He is in, in the first place of all the other, of the, all the other things that people supposedly call gods. God Almighty, El Shaddai, Exodus 6, 2 through 4. As, as we're thinking about Moses going back to Egypt to, to do, uh, uh, to deliver the people of Israel and God is reminding him, I am Almighty. I can do anything. I can save the people of Israel. I can deliver them. I am able to do anything. El Shaddai, God of seeing, one of the very unique words or terms for God, El Rai, I don't know how to say that word, El Rai, I don't know how to say it necessarily because I'm not an expert in Hebrew, Exodus 16, 11 through 13, this is Hagar and Ishmael. As Hagar is driven out by Abraham after conceiving Ishmael, she goes out into the desert. She's expecting to die, and God comes and helps her, and she calls God El-Riah, the God of seeing, the God who has seen me, because he does see. He's, he's not just an idol sitting in a, in a room in a shelf. He sees what's going on in the world. And we, we're, we'll see a lot of these, these different phrases. I've thought about doing a study just of these phrases, El-blank, god modifier, some aspect of God, and most of the Hebrew names that end in L say something about God. They mean something about God. All of the different names that we think about in the Bible that either have L or end in E-L, that is something about God. The Old Testament writers highly emphasize his justice, his power, and his might. Contrasted again with the myriad false gods. And what we see in the, in the Bible, the, the story of the Bible God is presenting himself as being different than all the other gods that people worship. He is a God in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, a God of order, as opposed to the chaotic nature of the gods that the other nations served and the creation myths that other cultures had. The Genesis account is very orderly. He is a God of order and, and creation about things, putting them in their proper place. Things are made with a purpose. It's not just random and chaotic. As we go through the Old Testament, we see time after time again, the contrast between these gods that you serve that can't do anything, these gods that are not doing anything for you, as opposed to the one true God who is powerful and mighty, who does stuff, who is active in the lives of his people. There's far less variety when we come to the New Testament. The word God, there's a, a several different words that are translated God in the Old Testament we haven't talked about, but the basic one being Eloha or Elohim. In the New Testament, it's really just theos, which we get theology or theocracy or any of those theo words. Uh, it, it comes from this Greek word for God. Again, a generic term that's used to describe Zeus or Hermes or, or any of the other gods that people worshipped at the time. And it's interesting how little the writers of the New Testament use God's name. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about Yahweh. We're going to talk about his name next week. How little the writers of the New Testament use that name. In fact, they use generally just God, Theos, or Lord, 
the, the general term for Lord, somebody who's in charge or a master. In the New Testament, the writers do emphasize certain traits of the one true God contrasted with the other gods. This is the main idea, that the God that we serve is not like other gods in both power and might and, and, and ability in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see some different contrasts. Acts 17, 26 through 28. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. This idea of creator, again, God is the creator, the one who made all things. But unlike many creation myths, God wants us to know him. The gods that other cultures worshipped, they didn't care. They made us and sort of toy with us. And they, if you read any of the, I don't know how much you've ever read the original Greek and Roman religious myths and stories, they're not nice. They toy with us and they manipulate us and they torture us as opposed to the contrast of what Paul's talking about here, the God that actually made us wants us to find him. And he's orchestrated creation for this to happen. He has made us all in such a way that we would be able to find God. He's not very far. If we would feel our way toward him and find him like blind people stumbling in the dark, he's there waiting for us, waiting to be found. Romans 8, 12 through 17, So then, brothers, we are debtors not, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're going to talk about at the end of this series on God, this first intro series, we're going to talk about the word spirits. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the New Testament does not uniquely idea or situate God as Father. The Old Testament talks a lot about God as Father, Father of the Israelites. Of course, what's unique about the New Testament from the Old Testament is who can be a child? Not just the Israelites, not just one nation, and there's a couple of interesting ideas that are contrasted with the other gods that people served, which were very nationalistic gods, very regional and very uh, sort of specific to the, a particular kind of people. But the idea that anybody could be a child of God, that he would treat anyone as a loving father does, that was ludicrous, ridiculous. Gods don't do that. Gods don't care for their creation like that. Gods don't love their creation like that. Gods are above, and they manipulate, and they do whatever they want. And if they want to torture us, they do. And if they want to make fun of us, they do. And if they want us to play little games for their entertainment, they do. That's how people thought about deities, as opposed to the one true God who wants to be our Father. Not the spirit of slavery at the whims of chaotic, cruel entities but the spirit of adoption that we are included in the family of God. 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Of course, the fundamental idea of the New Testament. As, as the New Testament writers talk about God and what makes 
the one true God different from the other gods. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God presents himself as something inseparable from love. That if we do not love, we cannot know God. Because it is so inherent in who he is. The one true God wants us to know certain things about himself. As we've looked at this word throughout scripture, and we've just done a brief cursory thing, really. Fifteen minutes is not enough to cover the breadth of it, but introductory material. He wants us to know that he's powerful, mighty, and strong. He can do anything. He can do whatever he wants. He can do all things that require... Uh, we've talked. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but the idea of God Almighty... Not that he can do anything, but that he can do anything that requires power to do. Because, of course, he can't lie. He cannot tempt. Those are not things that require power. But he can do anything that requires power. As opposed to the other gods that sit on a shelf and don't do anything. He is just and righteous and holy. He doesn't just use his power willy-nilly. He doesn't just sort of chaotically do whatever strikes his whim, but he has a sense of justice and rightness, and there are things that should be the way that they are, and, and he has a purpose for things. His power is not used just for his own pleasure, but according to what is right and his sense of justice and holiness. And yet, ultimately, he loves us and wants us to be his children. It's very exciting. Kids are having a rough time today. He wants us to be his children, even though we act like those kids, don't we? We kick and we scream and we wail. Even though God loves us, even though God wants what's best for us, even though God has used his power to bless us, even though we are rebellious children, he still wants us to be his. We're going to conclude with Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who's ungodly and unrighteous? Raise your hand. You're ungodly and unrighteous. God's wrath is coming for you. Except what? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You are without excuse. I am without excuse because we know God. Not all about God. Not everything there is to know about God. But I can see in the things that have been made that there is a creator. That he is powerful. That he is almighty. That he does care about order and justice. That he does care about his creation. I can see those things. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, the idols that they called gods. For us, it's probably not idols. For us, it's people, happy, uh, mixed two words there, hobbies and habits things that I like to do, things that I care about that are more than God, 
I put these other things in place of where God should be. The very idea of God, what that means, in essence, a creator deity, carries with it certain responsibilities and expectations. If there is such an entity, then he is supreme and worthy of whatever he deserves or wants. And he has told us what he wants. For us to love and serve and honor and fear and worship him. And he deserves it. Because he is the only God. 